Hi, and welcome back to the Itchy Podcast. My name is Lindsay, and I'm the Managing Editor for Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, or Itchy. Itchy is the official journal for the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. In each episode of the Itchy Podcast, we hear from authors of articles recently published in the journal. Today's episode is the first of a two-part series featuring articles from the September 2019 issue. That's volume 39, issue 9. First up, Elena Jamal talks about her study on infection prevention and control practices related to CPE in acute care settings in Ontario, Canada. Then, David Calfey shares with us the results of his article, Sustained Improvement in Hospital Cleaning Associated with a Novel Education and Culture Change Program for Environmental Services Workers. And lastly, Dimitri Draconia joins us to talk about his article, Teamwork and Safety Climate Affect Antimicrobial Stewardship for Asymptomatic Bacteriuria. After listening, please be sure to go to the September issue to read the full articles discussed in this episode. Joining us first today is Elena Jamal, first author of the article, Infection Prevention and Control Practices Related to CPE in Acute Care Hospitals in Ontario, Canada. Elena, before we get started, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Elena. I'm a combined MD-PhD student at the University of Toronto in Canada. I'm currently working on my PhD in clinical epidemiology with a focus on the prevention and control of carbapenemase producing Enterobacteriaceae, or CPE, as you heard in the title. Great. Well, thanks, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, can you start by telling us a little bit of the background for this study? Sure. In terms of background for this study, I think Itchy's readership knows what CPE are. These are Enterobacteriaceae that have acquired resistance to all beta-lactams and many other classes of antibiotics. So CP infections are challenging to treat, and because of this, they're associated with very high case fatality rates of up to about 50%. CPE emerged in Canada back in 2007, and although they're not widespread here yet, if we look at the incidence of CPE in southern Ontario, which is the province that I live and work in, the incidence has doubled about every two years since 2007, and notably, at least a third of our cases in southern Ontario have been associated with Canadian healthcare as opposed to healthcare abroad or travel. So I think this really highlights the importance of CPE prevention and control practices locally here in our own hospitals. The purpose of this study then was to determine what acute care hospitals in Ontario are doing in terms of their CPE prevention and control practices so that we could look at whether these practices are in accordance with CPE prevention and control guidelines in Canada and the US, and so that we could also look at whether there was variability in practice between hospitals in our province. And can you tell us a little bit about what you did in this study and what you found? Yep, so this was a, a descriptive cross-sectional survey to determine prevention and control practices for CPE at acute care hospitals in Ontario, which is a province in Canada with a population of about 14 million people. The survey was electronic and it asked about hospital CP admission screening, other patient screening, use of precautions to prevent transmission and outbreak management. We emailed the survey to the Director of Infection Prevention and Control at all acute care hospitals in Ontario and we sent three reminders uh, for, to them to complete the survey. Of the 116 acute care hospitals in Ontario, 105 or 91% responded. 
When we asked the hospitals about their admission screening, about 60% reported screening patients on admission if they had prior healthcare abroad. Our provincial guidelines recommend screening these patients because healthcare abroad is an important risk factor for CPE in our population. So I think we were hoping that this number would be closer to 100%. That being said, most of our hospitals haven't experienced CPE outbreaks yet, so that could explain this finding. Another interesting result was that the was that a minority, so only about 20% of hospitals reported screening patients on admission if they had prior exposure to Canadian healthcare. This is despite about a third of our cases being associated with prior Canadian healthcare, and also despite evidence suggesting that screening patients with only a history of local healthcare is actually cost-effective in low-prevalence settings like ours. Our provincial guidelines don't recommend screening these patients with just a history of local healthcare, which may explain why so few hospitals are screening them. And although there's evidence now that this may be a good idea or something to at least consider, it just goes to show how hard it is to update guidelines to keep up with new evidence. And also that that cost wasn't a barrier to more comprehensive admission screening in about 65% of hospitals surveyed. So it's also possible that hospitals are underestimating the threat that CPE poses locally. And so just don't feel a need right now to screen these patients that have only exposed, that have only been exposed to local healthcare here in Canada. So that's admission screening. Uh, when we asked hospitals about precautions to prevent transmission, Almost 95% of them put colonized patients on contact precautions, which is good. And over half of these hospitals never discontinued contact precautions. I think this is probably because there are no recommendations for when to discontinue precautions because we don't have good data yet on the duration of CPE colonization. And the last finding that I'll highlight is that a minority or about 20% of hospitals reported that they've cultured the hospital water environment. So things like sink drains, to look for CPE contamination. We know from prior, prior literature that outbreaks in patients have been linked to sink drains contaminated with CPE. In fact, six of the hospitals surveyed reported this type of transmission in Ontario. But if only 20% of our hospitals are looking for drain contamination and only a third of our hospitals are following guidelines that suggest managing drains differently in rooms with patients with CPE, then we may end up with a persistent CPE reservoir in our hospital water environment. Uh, the consequences of this to, to be seen. And so what aspects of your findings are most relevant to itchy readers? So overall, lots of variability in practices between hospitals. We think this is partly driven by the lack of evidence surrounding best practices, but possibly also driven by hospitals not seeing a need for these programs, as most hospitals set that cost is not a limitation for them. We know that control programs are most likely to be effective when prevalence is low, like in our setting. So I think now is a good time for us to consider whether we want a province or countrywide approach to CPE prevention and control, uh, and if so, how we're going to achieve this, especially because these coordinated regional approaches have proven to be most effective in the past in other settings. I'll add that as of last year, CPE is reportable in Ontario, which I think is a good uh, step for our province. And did the findings of your study raise any future research questions that you plan to investigate? In terms of future research, we're working on gaining a better understanding of CPE transmission dynamics locally, which we hope will provide data to help inform guidelines moving forward. So for example, we're using our population-based surveillance data in Southern Ontario to study the epidemiology of CPE particularly CPE associated with Canadian healthcare. Um, so not just CPE that's been 
acquired abroad uh, via healthcare or travel abroad. Some of these results will be available at ID Week this year in October 2019. We're also working with Public Health Ontario to link CPE epidemiologic data with genomic data to see if that gives us more information on local transmission dynamics here in our province. In terms of issues surrounding when to discontinue contact precautions, we're well into a prospective cohort study investigating the duration of CPE colonization. So hopefully we'll be able to share those results in the coming months. And finally, we've got some studies looking at CPE in the hospital water environment. And again, hopefully these papers will see the light of day in the coming months and we'll be able to share those findings. Great, well, we'll definitely look forward to that. Thank you again, Elena, for speaking with us today on the Itchy Podcast. Thank you for having me. Joining us next is David Calfee, one of the authors of the article, Sustained Improvement in Hospital Cleaning Associated with a Novel Education and Culture Change Program for Environmental Services Workers. Dr. Calfee, before we get started, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Hi, I'm David Calfee. I'm an infectious disease physician and a hospital epidemiologist at Weill Cornell um, Medical Center at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. To begin, can you give us a little bit of background for this study? Sure. Uh, In recent years, uh, the role of the healthcare environment in pathogen transmission has gained a lot of attention. Uh, Several investigators have reported that the healthcare environment, unfortunately, is not as thoroughly cleaned as one would expect or want, Uh, But some have demonstrated that education and performance feedback interventions for environmental service workers or EVS workers can lead to increased adherence to cleaning protocols. Unfortunately, many of these investigators have also found that these improvements are often not sustained after the initial intervention ends. So as we began to pursue some new quality improvement work in the area of environmental services, we thought that we needed to better understand what the current barriers were to consistent implementation of best practices in order to develop solutions that were more likely to lead to real and sustained change. So we partnered with our EVS colleagues, and in some earlier work, we assessed the thoroughness of daily and discharge cleaning of the hospital environment. We shadowed EVS workers as they went about their daily activities, and we asked questions and observed firsthand the current state and the challenges that were being encountered, and we administered a survey to frontline EVS workers at our five study hospitals to get a better understanding of knowledge, attitudes, practices, and barriers. And what we found was that there were a number of opportunities for education, for culture change, and barrier reduction uh, that, if adequately addressed, might allow EVS workers to more effectively and consistently perform their duties, um, perhaps with greater satisfaction. And these opportunities ranged from increasing awareness of the role of the environment and therefore EVS uh, in patient safety uh, to things like technical skills and expectations to personal safety concerns and basic infection prevention strategies. Workflow barriers were also something that seemed to be important to address in our efforts to promote change and engagement. So the interventional study that's the subject of our current publication in ITCHI was really the natural next step based on the findings of those preliminary studies. And so tell our listeners a little bit about what you did in this study and what you found. 
Well, we designed a prospective educational intervention for EVS workers at the five acute care hospitals that had preliminary, uh, excuse me, uh, that had participated uh, in the preliminary work that I just described. We designed the intervention using adult education theory in an effort to foster real and sustained improvement. So for example, we allowed the learners to have a say in the content and process by using the findings of our previous assessments, the survey results, and input from EVS leadership and frontline staff. We focused on adding to what they already knew, not simply repeating things that they already knew or had already been told. We concentrated on issues that were directly related to their work. And finally, the program was centered on solving problems. For example, we didn't just say bed rails should be cleaned every day, but we actually tried to help resolve the barriers and challenges that were currently preventing some of our EVS workers from consistently cleaning bed rails in occupied patient rooms. We developed an interactive five-part education series that we delivered in person during regularly scheduled EVS department meetings during all shifts. We prioritized active participation and engagement by using things such as an audience response system, live demonstrations, and other forms of audience um, engagement and participation. We told stories about real patients whose care at our hospitals uh, was complicated by infection. And the five components were presented about one or two months apart and covered topics such as an overview of healthcare-associated infections and how germs are transmitted in healthcare facilities, uh, basic infection prevention strategies like hand hygiene, transmission-based precautions, and proper techniques and rationale for donning and doffing personal protective equipment, uh, the importance and key aspects of discharge and daily cleaning, such as contact time and the use of elbow grease, and finally, practical strategies to overcome the challenges and barriers that they most commonly encountered, things like clutter, interruptions, concerns about disturbing patients or approaching surfaces and items close to patients, and patient refusals of room cleaning. After that initial five-part series, subsequent brief sessions that we called refresher sessions were provided about every three to six months to foster relationships and enhance knowledge gain and behavior change. We evaluated the program uh, using a combination of in-session audience response questions and post-session questionnaires. Uh, we used objective assessments of the thoroughness of cleaning, and we monitored rates of hospital onset C. difficile infection and MRSA bloodstream infections. And we were pleased to see that the great majority of participants liked the sessions and they found them relevant and useful uh, in their daily work. Most also reported a greater understanding of how patients develop infections in hospitals and the role that cleaning and disinfection play in preventing infections. They reported being more confident in their ability to don and doff PPE and perform hand hygiene and being more confident in implementing the hospital's cleaning protocols. At three months after completion of the initial five-part series, uh, we observed significant improvements in the thoroughness of cleaning of high-touch surfaces in occupied patient rooms, one of the greatest opportunities that we had identified in our initial assessments. Notably, the most dramatic improvements were seen among those items within the immediate patient zone. And these improvements were maintained at one year after completion of the initial education program. In terms of patient outcomes, which is the ultimate goal of this work, 
we observed a statistically significant 11% reduction in the C. difficile standardized infection ratio, or SIR, uh, between the pre- and post-intervention periods, and a non-statistically significant 23% reduction in hospital-onset MRSA bloodstream infections. Now, of course, both of these outcomes are admittedly uh, multifactorial in nature, and our study design doesn't allow us to prove that the intervention was the cause of these observed reductions, but I think it's at least biologically plausible that the intervention may have contributed to those observations. And what aspects of your findings are most relevant to the itchy readers? Well, I think one of the major um, takeaway messages is uh, if you will, is that while environmental cleaning and disinfection in hospitals and other healthcare facilities is a complex process with many inherent challenges and barriers, uh, making and sustaining improvement is possible, and I think it's worth it. Uh, for me, another moral of this story is that to get sustainable improvements, uh, probably in any process, uh, you really need to identify and address the barriers to consistent implementation of evidence-based policies and protocols that exist within a facility. And I think another takeaway uh, is the huge value of teamwork and multidisciplinary collaboration. I think this work would not have been successful and certainly probably not even possible uh, without the engagement and active participation of our EVS leaders and frontline staff. And Dr. Kalfi, my last question for you is whether the limitations of this study or its findings raised any future research questions that you'd like to see investigated. Absolutely. Um, first of all, while the sustained improvement at one year after the intervention was really encouraging, uh, we're interested in evaluating the even longer-term impact of this type of intervention. And one of the potential limitations of our study is that it was conducted uh, within a limited number of hospitals. They were all acute care hospitals, and they were all part of the same healthcare system within a fairly specific geographic region. So we don't really know how well we can generalize our, finding, our findings to other settings, such as other types of hospitals or hospitals in other locations, or non-hospital settings, such as long-term care facilities. That said, although the educational intervention did contain some institution-specific information, it was largely, I think, quite relevant to other hospitals and other types of healthcare settings. So as a next step, we'd really like to try to implement a similar program in other facilities and assess its impact in this different setting. And finally, in the long term, we'd like to be able to use this work uh, and the materials that it generated uh, to contribute more broadly to quality improvement and patient safety efforts related to environmental cleaning and disinfection in healthcare facilities. Great. Well, thanks again, Dr. Kalfi, for joining us today on the Itchy Podcast. Thank you. Our last guest today is Dimitri Draconia, first author of the article, Teamwork and Safety Climate Affect Antimicrobial Stewardship for asymptomatic bacteria. Dr. Draconia, before we get started, will you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure, so my name is Dimitri Draconia. I'm the Chief of Infectious Diseases at the Minneapolis VA Healthcare System, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Minnesota. Great, well, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. To start, will you give us a little bit of the background for this study? 
Certainly. So this is actually, this project is sort of a larger project. It's a VA Health Services Research and Development funded project that Barbara Troutner down at the Houston VA is the primary investigator of. She really started this um, with some pilot work at her institution, looking at methods to identify and decrease unnecessary urine culture testing, which led to decreased antibiotic use. Um, this is a problem that we see kind of throughout most centers and clinics when we look at it. And we have a eight site study, four intervention sites, four control sites. And this paper really comes out of some baseline survey work that we did at the intervention sites, trying to sort of lay out the landscape of how do people think about asymptomatic bacteriuria? What seems to be their baseline knowledge base, um, attitude, safety climate, really trying to canvas all the people who might be involved, whether it's physicians, nurse practitioners, nurses, nursing assistants, um, what do they think about urine cultures and how do, they, how do they go about deciding when a urine sample should be sent. And so tell us a little bit more about what you did in this study and also what you found. Sure. So um, I guess one thing I, I should start with is that one sort of arching principle that we sort of look at is when a urine culture makes it to the lab and microbial growth is detected, it becomes sort of a magnet for treatment. Even if the patient is asymptomatic, where there's pretty clear guidelines suggesting that most patients with asymptomatic bacteriuria should not be treated, a positive urine culture in the chart just becomes irresistible. Someone will come along and notice that, oh, this, you know, this is a positive culture and it can't be treated. So we're really trying to figure out how do cultures make them make it down to the lab. And so for this study, what we did is we had research assistants working at each of the four intervention sites who went about with paper surveys um, and really tried to get a good representative sample from everyone involved in ordering urine cultures on the wards, um, generally the medicine wards or the long-term care wards in these four VA medical centers. So they were trying to reach um, attending physicians, resident physicians, fellows, nurses, including both registered nurses and LPNs, licensed practical nurses, certified nursing assistants, really everyone who is engaged in the process of, oh, I think a urine culture should be sent and giving them this survey. And the surveys differed a little bit, um, but they asked some general knowledge questions, you know, went, gave some scenarios of when do you think a urine culture should be sent gave some very specific ones saying, you know, if the color has changed, should a urine culture be sent? If there is a, if the urine is cloudy, should a urine culture be sent? And then also asking questions about what happens if a, if this bug is isolated in a urine culture in a patient who doesn't have urinary symptoms, what should you do? And we gave the same scenario with different results, um, looking to see would the decision to give antibiotics changed based on what ruined the culture, even though the patient was, was described identically in all of those cases as not having any urinary symptoms. And then lastly, there was a survey that, uh, a portion of the survey that really dealt with safety climate and overall teamwork in a hospital that's been validated by others, looking to see what do people think of the safety aspect and the teamwork aspect of the hospital they work in. And so tell our listeners a little bit about what you found. So first off, we were fairly happy with the response rate. Um, you know, with all surveys, you worry that you're going to only hear from a, a subset of people and do those people have, you know, major differences from those who are not answering the survey. So we're um, 
fairly fairly pleased overall that um, you know we had we had pretty decent response rates in general. I think it was 76 for the staff providers, 76%, 82% for residents, 58% for nurses, and 53% for certified nursing assistants. There was a fairly decent knowledge base in terms of uh, the knowledge or the percent of questions that people got correct. In general, 77%, which is actually fairly high for other similar surveys. On the indications for sending urine cultures, that's really where we saw some rather interesting results. In particular, um, when we asked both the nurses and the nursing assistants, who really are the frontline providers who sometimes see, you know, you know, the, they'll be the first ones where the patient reports something to, or they'll see the urine in a urine bag or in a, in a you know, if the patient's gone in a urinal and not right in the toilet, they'll notice that the urine is cloudy or has a foul smell to it. There we noticed that, a, you know, the majority of nurses, you know, almost 80% indicated that cloudy urine is a reason to send a urine culture. Uh, foul smelling urine, you know, both both nursing assistants and nurses more than 80% thought that was a valid reason to be sending a urine culture, which we, amongst the, our, amongst the, the group as we were going over the results, we were all wondering, well, what exactly is good smelling urine? I mean, all urine doesn't smell terribly good. Um, <laughs> so we were wondering what, what, what really triggered that threshold. And then the other thing that we found sort of interesting is that when, when you change the the urine culture result, we gave a, a pretty standard um, clinical vignette of a patient who was, was admitted in the hospital with a respiratory illness, had no urinary symptoms, had an indwelling urinary catheter, which we typically expect will have growth if you take a urine sample from a long-term indwelling catheter. And we tweaked what the results were. If we told the, the survey taker that only mixed gram-positive organisms were isolated in culture, which most people think of, oh, that's just typical normal flora, only 8% of people said, yes, that should be treated. If we said, well, now there's enterococci in addition to the mixed gram, gram positives, that jumped up to 33%. And if we said, well, it's E. coli growing in the, in the culture, it went up to 41%. And if we said it's a highly resistant and extended spectrum beta-lactamase producing E. coli, over half the people said, yes, that warrants treatment, which is semi-ironic because that's how you get the, a highly resistant E. coli as you expose it to more antibiotics. Um, so that, and again, in all of those cases, the, the scenario did not change. It was a patient with no urinary symptoms in someone with an indwelling catheter, growth would be expected. And then lastly, when we looked at um, safety culture score, we noticed that items in the survey that we put around behavioral constructs and risk perceptions were significantly associated with a higher safety culture score, which really means that so if you had a higher score on the safety culture, um, you were more likely to agree that that leaving asymptomatic bacteria untreated was generally not harmful, which really comports with what the current guidelines and the evidence says. Similarly, if you had a strong safety climate score and a teamwork score, you also were more likely to be scoring high on social norms and that and those would be say you would agree with that other clinicians you work with generally do not screen for and treat asymptomatic bacteria. So it seemed that and those who rated the safety and teamwork climate scores as high, they were more likely to follow guideline concordant um, practices. And so what aspects of your study and its findings are most relevant to the itchy readers? I think one thing I've noticed from you know, the table of contents and the papers I see in itchy is that I mean, the issue of antibiotic overuse, you know, it, 
it, this may be stating the obvious, but this really does resonate. I think there is no one who reads itchy who doesn't recognize that unnecessary antibiotic use is a major driver of antimicrobial resistance, and this is preaching to the choir. We all know that this is a you know, rising challenge and probably one of the defining challenges of healthcare in our time. I think what this does, what this does do both for the readers and hopefully for our study team is it really lays out some of the areas where we think we can focus our efforts to try um, decrease unnecessary testing, which we think is going to lead to decreasing unnecessary antibiotic use. I think at this point it's pretty well established that yes, there is unnecessary urinary testing going on. That's That's been shown over and over again. And I think we're trying to get down into the weeds of, okay, well, what particularly makes this happen? You know, what, what is it that is making someone order this test? Is it, a, is it a social norm that, well, this is what you do as part of a workup? Is it something that happens on the wards? And we're learning a lot on our study wards where some of our residents will say, you know, I didn't really think I needed to order a urine culture, but all of a sudden it popped up in the order section and I was told, you know, that, you know, that the nurse thought that the urine looked cloudy and had a bad smell. And so they sent a sample and entered the order and I signed off on it. And sometimes new interns, you know, they don't really understand that you don't have to sign off on everything that's entered. You can say, you know what, I don't think we need that order and, and go and have the conversation say, you know, this person doesn't have any symptoms. Uh, yes, it's cloudy, but we actually anticipate some, you know, we anticipate that urine sometimes has a bad odor and sometimes may have some sediment in it. And that's, if they're asymptomatic, that's nothing to be worried about. So hopefully this will teach us some of the, the nuances of where we can target interventions as to how to stop some of these unnecessary testing from going forth. I think there's a increasing recognition that sort of diagnostic stewardship is important to antimicrobial stewardship because sometimes the results of the tests is what really drives the clinicians to start antimicrobial therapy. And my last question is, can you talk a little bit about the limitations of this study and how you're factoring that into your future work? Sure. Um, all studies have limitations. Survey studies in particular, we, you know, we are certainly cognizant that when you, send, when you distribute a survey, you know, not everybody responds, and there probably are differences between those who respond and those who do not. Um, we generally, there's a general thought that those who are more willing to respond to surveys are, they would bias, there would be a bias towards these are people who are more sort of conscientious about doing the right thing. And hopefully this would bias towards, you know, that they would actually be overperformers in terms of um, their knowledge base and their attitudes. So if anything, we think that the, the true knowledge base about when you should be sending a urine culture might actually be a little bit worse. We don't really know that, but certainly, you know, in terms of going forward and how we're delivering our interventions, it, it at least gives us some targets to go to go for, forward with and create scenarios and teaching materials around these things. And specifically, when we go and talk to the nurses and we talk to the residents and deliver this intervention, focusing on the fact that no, it's really not what grows, you know, how scary the bug looks, it's really the symptoms are what should be driving the decision to treat or not, and going out and educating um, staff that when you have a catheterized patient or simply a patient who's, you know, frail and hospitalized, there is a very high prevalence of asymptomatic bacteria. So sending a culture for any reason will find a result quite often at the, in the microbiology lab. So recognizing that, you know, what do you expect to find if you send a culture is an important aspect of this um, and only sending 
um, cultures when you actually have clinical symptoms is what we're trying to push. And so this gives us some, uh, some starting point. It certainly could be that we missed some other factors that are driving testing that we either didn't design correct questions to identify, and that might be a topic for future work, but we think we at least have a fairly decent list of targets where we can design interventions around, which will hopefully decrease um, prescribing in these intervention sites. And actually, first it will decrease urine testing. We hope it'll also decrease antimicrobial prescribing, and then we'll compare it to the control sites and see what's going on. Great. Well, thank you again, Dr. Draconia, for speaking with us today on the Itchy Podcast. It was my pleasure. Thanks. This concludes episode 10 of the Itchy Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and thanks for listening.